1: I must admit that I've always struggled with accents. You know, people be speaking perfectly clear English, yet I haven't a single clue as to what they're saying. This happened most recently while I was watching a BBC comedy titled The Kennedys, and I had to hit the rewind button a number of times because I just kept missing the punchlines, and this is far from the first time that this has happened. I was once on the phone with a woman from New Orleans, and I could hardly understand her. And I felt awful for having to ask you to repeat things, and I apologized profusely. But when I got off the phone, I wondered for a moment how it could be that we were from the same exact country, and we had such different ways of speaking English. And this brings to mind a professor I had while I was attending graduate school at the University of Rochester. And I must say that his English was probably better than mine. I mean, he was a PhD, but I really had to work hard to overcome his strong Indian accent. And occasionally he would just throw me for a loop where I had no clue what he was talking about. My favorite, most memorable, was a time when he spent about 20 minutes talking about the liver rule. The liver rule. And I wasn't alone in misunderstanding him since I could hear giggling all around the classroom. Of course, keep in mind we're all immature students in our early 20s at this time. Well, at the end of class, a bunch of us got together and all had the same exact question. What the heck did he mean by the liver rule? And that's when someone chimed in and said he was telling us to use the lever rule. Of course, some of you are probably questioning my New York pronunciation, since I know others will pronounce it as the lever rule. So liver, lever, lever, you know, it's all the same. Tomato, tomato. One of the terms that he used, which I completely understood, was his pronunciation of the Himalayas, which I had always been taught was the Himalayas. And I did have other Indian acquaintances. In fact, I had two Indian friends who pronounced it the same exact way as my professor, So my hunch is that that's the correct way to pronounce it, and it's also the way I've been pronouncing Himalayas ever since. Now, no matter how you pronounce it, you know, high up in the Himalayan mountains is not a place that anyone would want to be forced to fight for their survival. It's cold, windy, snow-covered, and barren of any vegetation. It's unlikely that anyone could ever make it out of there alive. Well, today I have for you an incredible story that took place high up in the Himalayas or Himalayas during World War II. And it's one that involved the crash of a military transport plane right into the side of one of its mountains. While two crew members did survive the crash, they immediately realized that no one was coming to save them. They would have to save themselves. Could they do it? Well, you're about to learn the fate of those two men in a story I've titled, Almost Over the Hump. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast.
0: Useless Information.
1: Well, probably the best place to begin is with a very brief history lesson. When I say brief, I mean very brief. You see, at the beginning of World War II, Great Britain had most of its military resources focused on its war with Germany. And this left one of its colonies, Burma, which is now Myanmar or Myanmar, depending how you pronounce it it left Burma poorly defended, and that's a fact that Japan took notice of. That's because Japan was already at war with China, and had taken control of the bulk of the Chinese coastline. This left just one major way for the Allies to get supplies into China to help fight the Japanese. That was over land via the Burma Road, which just let's say was not exactly a superhighway. Stretching 717 miles or 1,154 kilometers in length, the road was narrow, winding, and among the most dangerous in the world at the time. Yet, of course, it was better than nothing. Japan wanted Burma badly, and it was not just for its natural resources, which it did want, but to take control of the Burma Road and halt the transport of military supplies into China. So in 1942, the Japanese took advantage of the poorly fortified Burma, and they swept in and took control of the country. And if the Allies couldn't get supplies into China by land or sea, they had just one option left. They'd have to take to the skies. But this was a risky proposition if you think about it. We're talking about flying over the Himalayas, the tallest mountains in the world, with pre-jet age airplanes. This would be tough to do even in the best of conditions, but these planes would be flying fully loaded through some of the worst weather conditions ever with Japanese aircraft on the prowl. Just to give you an idea of how dangerous these transport missions were, between the initial flight on April 8th of 1942 over what the Allied pilots referred to as the Hump until the winding down of the program in November of 1945, 594 aircraft were reported lost or missing with 1,659 men killed or missing in action. That is not good odds. Perhaps you're old enough to remember the late CBS anchorman Eric Severide. He was on one of those hump missions when his airplane developed engine troubles. So he quickly grabbed a bottle of gin and he safely parachuted down into the jungles of Burma. About one month later, he'd be rescued by a search and rescue team, and he later wrote, quote, Hardly a day passed that the operations radio did not hear the distress signal of a crew going down in the jungle valleys or among the forbidding peaks. Few at that time were ever found again, and there was a saying among the pilots that they could plot their course to China by the line of smoking wrecks on the hillsides. It is not often that one sees fear in the face of flyers, but I saw it here. Each one reckoned that it was only a matter of time before his turn would come. They had the feeling of men who know they have been condemned. Of course, many stories could be told of these hump flights, but I just want to focus on one of them. That of China National Aviation Corporation, or CNAC number 58. It departed Dinjan, India on April 7, 1943, and it was loaded with graphite electrodes with a destination of Kunming, China. At the controls of the Douglas C 53 DO Skytrooper was 26 year old pilot Camille Joseph Rosbert, or Joe Rosbert for short and he was from Philadelphia. He had earned a degree in chemical engineering from Villanova College in 1938, but he was unable to secure employment after graduation, so he became a pilot for the U.S. Navy. Then, seeking new adventure, he resigned from his commission in 1941 and volunteered to fight for China. There, he joined up with the American Volunteer Group, which is abbreviated AVG, and they were later coined the Flying Tigers. And he was credited with downing seven Japanese planes. And when the AVG disbanded on July 4th of 1942, Rosberg joined up with the Cnac to fly over the Hump, which is how we find him at the controls of the flight we're about to talk about. Joining him as co-pilot on this flight was another experienced airman, that was 24-year-old Charles Ridgely Hamill III, or Ridge for short. He was a civilian pilot who, along with 15 other Pan Am pilots, volunteered to fly eight large transport planes into Burma to evacuate citizens there, and that was just prior to the Japanese takeover. After that, Ridge joined up with the Pan American African Corps, and their job was to transport strategic material and personnel from Miami down to South America, across the Atlantic to the African coast, then traverse the Sahara to the Middle East, and then up to the hump where, of course, uh, they'd fly it over the hump. Ridge typically flew the desert portion of these missions, but there was something about the hump that appealed to him. So he made the switch, and this particular flight that he was co-piloting would be his very first time over the hump. And there was a third man on board, although I should mention that little is known about him. He was Chinese radio operator Li Wang. Takeoff from the airstrip went smoothly and was purposely done under the cover of thick fog, and that was to prevent being spotted by Japanese fighters. Climbing ever higher and higher into the sky, they encountered torrential monsoon rains that were just pounding against their windshield. Then, at approximately 12,000 feet, or 3.66 kilometers, the rain transitioned into heavy snow. As the plane continued its ascent, Ridge knew that they were getting close to the top. So he grinned, turned around to Li and gave him a pat of assurance on his head, and he told him, quote, We're okay now. Another thousand feet and we'll clear the hump. Another hour and you'll be home. Yet the plane was starting to struggle. Heavy ice began to form a film across the windshield and then it spread to the wings, quickly coating them in a 6-inch or 15.25-centimeter layer of ice. That is a lot of ice and a lot of weight. So the airplane began to lose airspeed and altitude. So Joe radioed back to Dinjan and he let them know that he was turning back to the base. So he proceeded to turn the aircraft 180 degrees, but the inside of the windows froze completely over and he was unable to see where he was going. So Joe attempted to melt the ice by alternately pressing the warm palms of his bare hands against the glass. You know, put one hand on, when he got too cold, switch to the other hand. And he was able to melt a small peephole about two inches or 5.1 centimeters in diameter. And he was finally able to see that they were passing through a dense cloud. No big deal, right? Well, just as they emerged from that cloud, the rocks of a jagged peak suddenly appeared out of nowhere, and they were within seconds of slamming directly into it. Look out, Joe blurted. There's a mountain. And instinctively, with his eyes still peering through that tiny hole in the iced-up windshield, he veered the aircraft to the right and missed the peak. They had been within inches of certain death when a sudden loud scraping noise could be heard emanating from under the belly of the aircraft. It was as if the plane was being ripped open by a giant can opener. And then they came to a sudden halt and everything was quiet. It took a few moments for the two pilots to get a sense of what had just happened, but it wasn't long before Ridge announced, Get out of this thing before it catches fire! And just as Rude prepared to make his exit, Joe told him, Come back in, you'll freeze to death out there. They soon learned that the engines had been ripped off in the crash so there was no danger of fire. Only the cabin of the plane had remained intact, which provided them with shelter against the elements. The radio, which was their only contact with the outside world, it had been destroyed. Even worse, far worse, the crash had snapped Li Wang's neck and he was killed instantly. It was just the two of them now. And the main reason they survived was because in banking that plane away from the peak, it was now able to travel parallel to the face of the mountain and come to a halt. And if the rock and snow had not stopped the plane, they would have crashed into another mountainous peak that was just a little farther up, and that would have certainly done them in. Needless to say, Joe and Ridge were in the worst of predicaments. They were 14,800 feet or 4.51 kilometers above sea level and there was little chance of them ever being rescued. And that's because the storm that had brought them down blanketed the plane with an additional two feet or 0.61 meters of snow overnight. There was absolutely no way that any rescue mission would be able to spot them from the air. Their only other option was to climb down the mountain but that would be nearly impossible to do even under the best of conditions. And not only did Joe and Ridge have no clue where they were or how far it was to civilization, they lacked food, protective gear, and good health. You see, the crash had cut up Ridge's hands and face quite a bit, and he was having a difficult time walking due to a sprained ankle. And Joe, he had it even worse. His left ankle had been severely fractured in multiple places. He would suffer unbearable pain each and every time he applied even the slightest amount of pressure to it. These two men were literally stuck between a rock and a hard place. If they stayed, they'd almost certainly die from the lack of food and the extreme cold. On the other hand, if they opted to leave with their bad legs, there was little chance they would survive the treacherous hike out into civilization. So, what would you do in this situation? Would you stay or would you leave? Well, the two pilots assessed their situation and both came to the same conclusion. While the odds were stacked against them, they had no choice but to hoof it out of there and save themselves. As they looked around the snow-covered landscape, they observed that there was a tree line about 5,000 feet or 1.5 kilometers below them. And of course, where there are trees is probably also water. So if they could locate a small stream and follow it, That would lead to a larger stream and then to a river, which may bring them to a small town or village. The plane was equipped with six small tins of food, and for some oddball reason, there was a gallon jar of soft drink syrup, and they could use that to mix with snow to drink. At best, they could ration this little bit of nourishment to last about one week. So they figured if they waited five days, their ankles would heal up enough so they could take each step without a lot of pain and then they'd be able to leave. But they grew impatient, and on the third day, they decided to begin their hike out. They weren't successful. You see, the slope was incredibly steep, and they were in such pain that they barely covered a distance of 200 yards, or 183 meters, in four hours. So they decided to turn back, and they arrived back at the fuselage just as darkness began to set in. The men felt hopeless. Knowing that they were probably going to die, they struggled to fall asleep that night, but they did eventually doze off. Then suddenly, a brilliant idea popped into Ridge's head. He began to pry one of the floorboards of the plane loose, and of course that woke Joe up. Ridge suggested they use the floorboards of the plane as sleds to race down the mountain. And not only would this keep them off their bad ankles, but it would also get them to the tree line far faster than they could have ever done on four good feet, And of course, they needed to get to the tree line because they needed the shelter of those trees to protect them from the elements. It was their only hope. So they quickly got to work ripping up the boards. They also pried boards from the plane's cabin to use as splints to secure their ankles. They took the silk parachutes and they tore them into strips, and that was to serve three purposes. First, it was to bandage up their damaged ankles. Second, they wanted to secure the splints, so they tied the splints onto their legs. And third, they used the silk strips to protect their hands and feet from the brutal cold. When daylight finally came around, they headed off. Well, sort of. You see, their homemade sleds were a complete failure. They would go rapidly down a hill, but as soon as they hit a soft spot, the boards would just dig into the snow and they'd stop. Then of course, they'd have to dig the boards out and start once again. And they did this over and over again until Ridge hit a rock and suddenly went tumbling about 50 yards or 46 meters down slope. You know, an object in motion stays in straight line motion. Luckily, he was unhurt and they realized we don't need these sleds. We can just tumble down the mountains. They just gave up on them, And it wasn't long before they discovered the most efficient way to do this. All they needed to do, and most kids know how to do this, all you do is you lie on your back, pull your legs in towards your chest. Hold them tight against your body and go. This worked incredibly well until they approached the tree line. That's when they encountered a steep slope that was estimated to be about 500 feet or 152.4 meters straight down. And while this may be a bit of an exaggeration, they felt they had no choice but to go over the edge and hope that they landed in soft snow below. So Ridge went first and he landed safely. He then yelled back to Joe, It's okay, but it's rough. Come on down. And that's exactly what Joe did. Now remember, their wish was to find a stream that could possibly lead them to a larger stream. And luckily, they found one just before the evening sunset. So they took shelter in a small cave that covered only half their bodies, but it was better than nothing. And they placed their arms around one another in an attempt to stay warm. When Daybreak came around, they once again set out on their journey. What they found was not good news. The steep walls, rapids, and waterfalls of the stream made it impossible to follow. That was either from going up on its edges or traveling through the water. Their only option was to leave the stream and hike an alternate path. This meant three pain-filled days of hobbling over the jungle-filled hills until they encountered peaks that were simply too steep for the injured men to climb. This forced them to return to the stream and they made the torturous climb over the many giant angular boulders both in and out of the water that stood in their way. They were making what they thought was great progress until they encountered a series of incredibly steep waterfalls. Of course, any attempt to go over them would result in certain death. But climbing out of the stream valley was also impossible, and that's because its steep walls were nearly vertical. It seemed as if they were out of options. Now, keep in mind that Joe and Bridge were very low on energy, and that's due to a lack of nourishment. They had managed to spread the last of their rations out over many days. They consumed just one bite each morning and one at night, and they had taken the very last bite that morning. They had no food left. So would this be the place where they would both die? Well, I'm going to leave you in suspense for a moment as we take a brief break to hear from the sponsor of today's podcast. But when we return, I'll let you know what happened next. I'll see you on the flip side.
0: Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So, whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So, download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Just before the break, Joe and Ridge had encountered a series of waterfalls they were unable to descend, nor did they have the strength or equipment to climb the steep valley walls that surrounded the stream. So we'll pick up the story there. The two men sat down to ponder their situation. Then, out of the blue, Ridge noticed a long vine that was hanging down the valley wall, and he simply grabbed at it. He doesn't even know why. Not only was this vine strong, but they quickly deduced that it was not naturally grown there. It had been tied in place by human hands. Humans! They knew they must be getting close. How close they didn't know, but it was the most positive sign that they had received since their plane crashed. And the adrenaline kicked in and it provided them with the energy that they needed to climb that vine to the top of the valley wall. And they found something even better when they got up there. There were a number of saplings that had been notched as if they marked some sort of trail. So for the next three days, those notch marks took them along a journey that led them up and down numerous hills, over countless large rocks, and through dense vegetation. They had no clue where this was going to all lead, and maybe they are going in the wrong direction. Remember, trails go in two different directions. And even if it did lead to a location where they could be rescued, that journey could be incredibly long, and they knew they'd never make it if they didn't find some food. Now, it's not that Joe and Ridge didn't attempt to find food. They'd try just about anything they could find, but nothing seemed edible. At one point, Joe spotted a piece of fruit floating in a stream, and he fished it out. He thought it was a mango, but its taste was far too awful to be that. And both of them took bites of it anyway, and the result was incredible stomach pain and cramps. The only good thing that came out of eating that forbidden fruit was that it effectively numbed their stomachs for the next three days and it took away their hunger pains. Then, on day 13, the stream valley they had been following forked in two different directions. Unsure of which way to go, they simply continued in the direction they were already going. That was to the east and toward Tibet. They later realized they should have gone in the opposite direction, And that's because it would have taken them towards Burma and India, where their base was. Well, ultimately, that bad decision turned out to be the correct one. You see, after just one hour of hiking, they encountered a clearing, and they spotted a hut that had been burned to the ground. Later in the day, they spotted a child's footprints in the mud, which gave them further hope. Then, as the end of the day approached, they hiked over a hill and saw, elevated off the ground by stilts, a bamboo hut with a thatched roof. More importantly, there was smoke coming out of it, which meant that someone was probably inside. So they knocked on the doors of the hut, but no one answered. So Ridge forced in one of the doors and entered the smoke-filled room. Inside, they found two elderly women, one of whom was blind, and six nude children. They were all terrified of the two flyers, and although they didn't speak the same language... Joe and Ridge did their best to put their fears at ease. And once everyone was calm, the children handed each of the pilots a gourd, which they then used to scoop hot food that the women had generously offered. After getting some much needed nourishment, the two men quickly zonked out around the fire and caught some much needed Z's. What they didn't know at the time was that they had reached a hut that belonged to the Mishmi people. They were a group who were thought by outsiders to have been savage headhunters. Yet from the moment Joe and Ridge arrived, the Mishmi were anything but that. Instead, they were kind, generous, and did all that they could to help the two men. In fact, the flyers became a bit of a tourist attraction, and Mishmi came from all around to see them and the unique things that they had. That included zippers on their clothing, a flashlight, a compass, and a mechanical pencil. Then, on their fourth day at the hut, it was time to move on. Both were still suffering from their injuries, so three Mishmi men assisted the pilots as they hiked for eight hours along a rough mountainous trail. Their destination was a larger hut where the three men and four others lived, along with 15 women and countless children. About two weeks later, an elderly Tibetan trader arrived, and he said that he occasionally had contact with the outside world, a.k.a. quote, the white man. He asked Joe and Ridge to come with him, but they explained to him that they felt they needed another five days for their ankles to heal up before they could make another journey. The one thing they were puzzled by was that the trader had taken a keen interest in that mechanical pencil, but they refused to part with it. They felt it may be needed later on to send a note to potential rescuers. So, you know, they just didn't want to let go of it. Then, later that evening, the trader, you know, who may have been their only possible ticket out of there for a very, very long time, he left. Well, a few days passed, and suddenly the trader's son arrived at the camp. He generously gave the two men a chicken, a pinch of tea, and a bowl of rice. And just like his father, he took considerable interest in that pencil. Now, Joe wasn't sure, but could it be that he didn't want the pencil, but instead he wanted him to write something? So Joe quickly tore a corner off of his flying map and jotted down these words on it. We are two American pilots. We crashed into the mountain. We will come to your camp in five days. And that's the end of the quote. The young man then snatched a slip of paper and he ran off with it. They assumed he'd come back with his father on the fifth day and escort them to their hut but instead he came back on the fourth day and he presented them with a gift of four eggs. And then he left the hut briefly and returned with an even more generous gift. And when I mean more generous, I really mean it. It was a standard form that was used in India to send a telegram, and it was sealed shut with wax. This was official. So could this be the news of the rescue they had been hoping for? Well, it was. Inside was a message from Lieutenant W. Hutchings, who was commanding a British scouting column that was about a four-day hike away. Of course, that's four days on a good leg. He indicated he was immediately sending messengers with supplies and that a medical officer would arrive shortly after that. Well, they didn't have to wait long. You see, the natives could move through the mountains very quickly and they arrived with the supplies less than an hour later. And with the Mishmi people having been so generous to them, Joe and Ridge wanted to return the favor. I mean, they didn't have much to offer from what just came, but they shared some of the tea, salts, cigarettes, and matches in return. Two days later, Captain C. E. Lax arrived to administer first aid and bandaged them up so they could start the long journey out of there. The next morning, after 23 days with the Mishmi, they began a 16 day hike back to civilization. There were still many mountains to climb and streams to cross but this time they had ample food, warmth, and others to help them along when the going got tough. After reaching a British patrol station, Joe and Ridge jumped into a truck and they were transported back to the same base that they had flown out of 47 days earlier. Their story of survival against all odds made headlines all around the world, but once the attention faded, the two would go their separate ways. Ridge Hamill returned to flying over the hump about one month later, and he completed an estimated 400 dangerous crossings over that mountainous terrain. He returned to the United States in July 1944, where he married a woman named Jean Powell, and then he returned to resume flying over the hump about seven months later. Sadly, he was killed during takeoff from the airfield in Tinjan, India, on May 9, 1945, at 26 years of age. As for Joe Rosberg, uh, he was taken back to the United States to undergo extensive surgery to repair his ankle. Once he recovered, he and nine other former AVG pilots founded the Flying Tiger Line, uh, and they transported air cargo across the United States. In 1957, Joe and his wife Lil moved to Spain. They purchased a castle and created the Hotel San Vita Resort. Ten years later, he moved back to the States and he opened Tiger Joe's Gourmet Restaurant in North Carolina, and he also authored two books. He was 11 days shy of his 90th birthday when he passed away on January 8th of 2007. Due to the remoteness of the crash site there, aircraft is still lying there. It was located on December 14th of 2005 by Clayton Cools, and he specializes in finding aircraft and the remains of men who were lost on the hump. In his report, which you can read on his website, that's miarecoveries.org, he details what was found and he includes photos of the wreckage. The engines and the landing gear, which have been ripped off during the crash, they lie approximately 150 feet or 45.7 meters downslope from both the fuselage and the cargo that it was carrying. Now the fuselage is in far worse shape than when Joe and Ridge abandoned it, and that's not due to rust or anything like that. This is accidental. Turns out that it was severely burned by Mishmi hunters because they had been using it as a shelter. In one of the villages, Kool spoke with an elderly woman who had cared for the two pilots in her village along the Nagat River. She took one look at the photo of the two men taken shortly after their rescue, and she was positive it was them. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. Well, that brings another episode of the Useless Information Podcast to a close. I decided to do this particular story after Matt Breen of the Explorers podcast appeared on my last retrocast. You see, our brief discussion about Ernest Shackleton and his men surviving their ordeal in the Antarctic, it got me thinking about some of the obscure survival stories that I knew. This particular story of Joe and Ridge surviving their crash on the hump has always fascinated me, Uh, so I hope you found it equally enjoyable. Of course, you can find the Useless Information podcast on all the leading podcast platforms. That includes Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to contact me about this episode, the podcast itself, the website, or whatever, please do so through my email. That's steve at uselessinformation.org. You can use Facebook Messenger or by using the contact form on the website. My Twitter feed is at uselessinfocast. And also be sure to like the show on Facebook. You can just do a quick search for the Useless Information podcast there and it should pop up. Anyway, I'll be back in a couple of weeks with the next podcast and I thank you as always for listening and take care everyone. Bye.
0: All you need is a few minutes to start your day off with something historic when you listen to the This Day in History podcast. Every day there's a new episode for you to listen and learn about what happened that day way back when. So, listen and subscribe to This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts. That's This Day in History, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general
0: knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus